So you will add your fresh plant to your salt and that you can put it in your blender and blend oh. it. And then what's cool about it is that when oh. you do that, you'll watch your salt change color. It'll take on the color of the plant. Oh my gosh. Yeah. Oh. So like I made some calendula and it turned orange, but fever wow. few, it turns green, you know? And so whatever herb or plant you use, it's going to turn the color of that plant. It's pretty mm-hmm. simple. You're listening to Herb Mentor Radio by Learning Herbs. I'm John Gallagher. And I'm Tara Ruth. Today we're chatting with Sherelle Washington. Sherelle graduated from the California School of Herbal Studies clinical program and has completed over 1,200 hours of herbal craft making training. She is an instructor in Scarlet Sage's Community Herbalist program and in the Land of Verse Apprentice Herbal Certification program, as well as in herbal classes and intensives at the Northern California Women's Herbal Symposium. She also teaches dance and qigong at the Deep Root Center for Spiritual Studies, MOVE, Spirit and Rhythm Dance Program in Oakland, California. You can follow her on Instagram at Exalted Natural Body, which is spelled I-X-A-L-T-E-D, Natural Body. Welcome, Sherelle. Thanks so much for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. It's such an honor to be here. Thank you. Tara, thank you, John. I am so honored to be here to share with you all today. Thanks. Oh, thank you. I'm really excited to get to chat with you as well. We both went to the same herb school, but we didn't mm. overlap. But I've I've seen oh. you pop up on the like <laughs> alumni Slack thread a lot. Yeah. I was like, wow, this person is just doing so much and they're always <laughs> answering people's questions. And then I saw these classes you were teaching and I was like, I really want to talk to her. Oh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> that's awesome. I mean, yeah. you know, I have to say just to kind of jump in about the school. I mean, the school has been really impactful and and I remember when I was deciding to go to herb school some years ago and I found out about the school, I'm like, when I, when I visited this campus, that really was like the closer, like, got to be here for this because I wanted to be close to the plants and I wanted to be in such a beautiful place. And before I had never heard of the place. So it's just mm-hmm. to be at the school and to be surrounded and, and so immersed in the plant learning and the plant life was just a real blessing. And so... The school definitely holds a lot of love. I hold a lot of love for the school Mm. as well, for all of the training and the good training that I've received there. So I'm so glad to hear, Tara, that you too have experienced that school as well. Yeah, there's something about, yeah, in the school, it's the California School of Herbal Studies. And there's something so magical about that place, getting to mm-hmm. study in person in a forest. <laughs> yes, essentially, yeah. yeah, that's what it is. It's like you're mm-hmm. right there. And, you know, it was when I first attended, I was in the long term program in the herbal crafting and the body systems. And I would only come one weekend a month, which mm-hmm. I look forward to every month because it just the, the the drive was beautiful. It was kind of like a kind of like a moving meditation, if you will. Mm-hmm. And then I completed both of those programs and then I decided to come back last year to complete the CHP, the community herbalist program for their clinical training. So it was definitely a little bit different because I was going twice a week as opposed to one week in a month. So that was definitely a shift, you know, to commute that much. (laughs) It is a commute. Yeah, it was quite a commute. I definitely took a lot out of me, but I feel that it was worth it because I wanted to just go further in my training. And so it was definitely well worth it. Hmm. So, Sherelle, one of your passions as an herbalist is perpetuating herbal traditions and preserving herbal practices. Could you talk Mm -hmm. a little bit about what this means and why it's important? Well, it's important for so many reasons. I'll start by saying that one of the things that I began to advocate for a couple of years after initially completing the first two terms at herb school was to really advocate for the clarity in the term Western herbalism. Um, Mm. And what do we mean by that? You know, and I think a lot of people have an association that it's just, you know, herbs of the Western hemisphere, but there's some missing pieces in terms of the people groups. And so are we talking about Europeans? Mm -hmm. You know, and that's fine if that's what it is. But if we're talking about here on the North American continent, then I believe that we have to do it a little differently to really acknowledge the influence 
that other cultures have contributed to herbalism and herbal learning and herbal ways here on this continent. And so that's something that I began to speak more to on different panels that let's be really clear about what we mean. So for me, I decided to steer away from the term Western herbalism and say North American herbalism because it's more apropos to the indigenous people who were here, their their experience and that they bring to, to what we know about the herbal ways and also the plants here on this continent, Africans, you know, other and Asians and other people of color who have really helped to shape that here. So that became important to me to want to give voice to that. And then also, how do we expand our herbal learning? How do we expand our understanding of how to interact with plants? And just in my experience, even as being a student, that it seems very one-sided. And again, I understand, you know, those efforts to create some sort of standardized way of learning herbs. But then what about the other people in their ways? And how can that prepare us to be versatile Mm -hmm. in helping to serve broader communities and to reach more people? You know, I believe that on this continent, we would better serve herbalism if we know more other herbal ways and know other cultures and how that we can be of service to a much larger group of people. So mm-hmm. that's why that's really important to me. And to also preserve their history, to honor mm-hmm. their history and to teach it. And again, to help broaden our understanding of humanity at large and to mm-hmm. not see it in just one lens. And it's not to mm-hmm. say that the lens that we see it is bad. It's just that one lens. <laughs> right, <laughs> you know? right. That's all. It's just right. that one lens. And so when we talk about Black North American herbalism or African American herbalism, the fact that that's not known is concerning to me. The fact that we don't know much about Native American herbalism is 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 troubling to me. You know, now traditional Chinese medicine and Ayurveda, we know more about that because those systems are codified, and that's great. But there's also been a Westernizing of those traditions as well. Mm-hmm. And so, mm-hmm. how how do we how do we honor these cultures and understand them in their context, so that when we you know go in and begin to implement and bring those practices into our own that we can honor and preserve their their legacy and that we can also share and tell people about who they are so mm-hmm. that there's there's just a greater appreciation you know it's mm-hmm. it's more it becomes more about cultural appreciation as opposed to cultural misappropriation because because right. that, that that's happening too where you know we want to dip and we want to dip and dab and take a little bit but we don't want to acknowledge where we got it mm-hmm. you know and so right. that also really helping to perpetuate cultural or well cultural learning in general helps to mitigate that that if mm-hmm. I learn from another culture, then there's also a responsibility I have to make sure that I also teach about the people mm-hmm. so that then their legacy and their memory and their knowledge goes forward and that that's how they live on too, you know? And so that's why that's become really important to me and become an, and come really interwoven even, in it, even into my work as an herbalist and an herbal teacher. With African-American, African herbalism, is this have you explored this from your own family and heritage or were herbs not talked about much? And this has been your, um, you know, journey and you have, you know, looked in various places. Where is that, you know, where that journey taken you? Well, to go back, you know, my journey with my own cultural herbal learning began with my grandmother. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And my grandmother, she died August last year, 2022. She lived to be 100 years old. And so she was born in the, you know, 1920s. It's born in 1922. And so she was born wow. in Wharton, Louisiana. And so she was raised on a ranch. And so she really took to herbs because also her mother was a midwife. And so uh, she was a master gardener and she was really big on, she was a naturalist, you know. And so mm-hmm. one of her herbal books that she actually let me 
read was uh, Jethro Kloss's Back to Eden. She had one of the original prints. And so I still have a copy of his book, but that was the book that she really referenced a lot. Plus she had another book called The Vitamin Bible. And so she was really just big on natural health, natural eating. And her entire backyard was her garden. It literally was. And so she was the one in our family that we went to for anything that was ailing us or any type of question we had about the body or sicknesses. She was the one that we went to for those answers. And so as a young girl, you know, when I would visit her, I would spend time with her. I was the most the one who would spend time with her in the kitchen the most and mm. watching her make soups or watching her make teas. Or sometimes she would, there was this herbal natural food store where we lived called Mrs. Elliott's. And huh. she knew the founder of Mrs. Elliott's. And so she and her were really good friends. And she would, you know, bring back like flaxseed. But all this stuff wasn't even popular back then. But she yeah. was doing all that <laughs> stuff, flaxseed and different type of oat milks and nut milks that really? none of us drank. Oh my gosh, yeah, she was doing all that stuff. None of us drank it, but she she did because she uh-huh. really wanted she and she just looked always years younger than she actually was and she just took really good care of herself and so but with that was also what she embodied was just the ways in which African Americans practice herbalism. And so that's now I'm able to make that connection and in light of the research I've done, but also having that familial connection, starting with my grandmother, having that around me definitely has given me a reference that now I can I can put together also in, in comparison to the research that I've done. And so it's mm. it was both. It's experience and then also research that really brought me to wanting to really highlight the contributions that African-Americans have made to North American herbalism and how we interacted with plants and how we formulated using the plants that was around us and how, you know, in spite of the prohibitive and even the horrible conditions that many of our ancestors faced during the time of slavery, but it was herbalisms that became one of the crucial mechanisms that we needed to help ensure our survival you know, and to um, be able to, you know, bring our skills and our technologies from Africa to bring that with us because it didn't die with us during the Middle Passage. We brought all that still with us. We brought that ingenuity and that knowledge. And then also as we partnered with the original peoples that were here, that also helped to aid and further our abilities to interact with these plants and to help create viable solutions to help us be well. And then also, you know, these these efforts were noted in many medical journals by a man by the name of Francis A. Porcher, who would reference, you know, our reference and really applaud, you know, how well we worked with plants and how effective the remedies that we created were and how a lot of plantation owners relied on African enslaved to help treat and to help take care, even to help take care of slave master, you know, and so it's understanding that, it's understanding and knowing that has become really important to me that, again, as to your first question, helps to really Mm. perpetuate cultural learning and cultural understanding and herbal traditions. So that's how that ties in with that. Mm. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. You know when you talk about preserving herbal traditions, I'm thinking about preserving the traditions themselves and then also the ways in which herbalists cook with herbs and literally preserve herbs mm-hmm. with, and other plants with fat, with honey and alcohol and more. And you're talking about watching your grandma really embody her herbal practices in the kitchen and, you know, drinking oat milk way before it was trendy. And I'm curious, what are some of the ways that you've really woven working with herbs in the kitchen into your life and maybe woven in some of the practices that your grandmother taught you and bringing those, preserving those traditions by preserving herbs? <laughs> yes. Well, definitely what came, what come to my mind immediately is molasses. I've definitely since researching and also teaching, I definitely have brought brought more of molasses use and using that also as a solvent to make herbal medicinal syrups. 
more so. Mm. And it's just given me an opportunity to just also talk about the nutrient value of molasses. And so that's something that she actually worked with quite a bit. We didn't like it. Like I said, we didn't like the taste of it as kids, but she would, (laughs) (laughs) but she would use it, you know, for to sweeten tea or she made pancakes, she would use it for that. Or sometimes she would just take just a a teaspoon of it, you know, for the iron content and the Mm -hmm. calcium benefit as well. So that is also, I brought that in in some of my herbal tincture blends for clients, you know, to bring in that also as a flavonoid, you know, to help round out the taste. But again, to also add a nutritive benefit to the tincture formula as well. Other things I do like to work with been working with more is also the process of salt is being able to use take fresh herb material and use that to blend or grind into salt to make a herbal salt you know mm. and so traditionally salts or foot salts was used not just to cook with but also to put in a foot bath and the mm-hmm. herb that comes to me immediately into mind there is the mullein flower mm. was used, yeah, as a foot bath that added to salt for babies and for children in particular. Also, it was used to help quell pain or discomfort or foot ache, you know. So that's something that with that, that inspired me to do more herbal infused salts, you know, to cook with. And to also, I had, I had a client who was experiencing some high blood pressure, but also lacked trace minerals in his diet. And so I made him a small uh, herbally infused salt of feverfew, you know, to mm. help encourage that a little bit more. Now, feverfew is also a nice bitter. And also it's a plant that we interacted with as well. But also it's just, you know, sometimes having a bitter flavor with salt is can be, can be a savory taste, depending on what you put it on to help, you know, boost yeah. a savory flavor or a palate to what it is you're trying to cook. But also you get some really good benefits from the trace minerals of the sea salt as well to help add and help to create a healthy gut activity and to help your the polypeptides to, to help form so that you can digest your food well. And so mm-hmm. that was something that he really appreciated as well to have that. And so, you know, really working with herbal infused salts is something that I do bring into my practice. And then also mm-hmm. animal fats. You know, I mm-hmm. definitely, I teach a class about animal fats. And so I'll use my salves. I'll add some animal fats like beef tallow, you know, or maybe some type pork lard, all ethically raised and, you know, mm-hmm. harvested plant uh, uh, animals. But using that because traditionally fat was used as a way to get herbs into the body, you know, mm-hmm. um, at fat, it's also highly absorbent, you know. And so, again, it's just one of those one of those, you know, resourceful opportunities that, you know, if you're, you know, you, you use what's available. So animal mm-hmm. fats is definitely one of those resourceful things to use because you don't, doesn't require beeswax. It'll harden and solidify at room temperature. And you just slowly add your herbs and let it infuse either over crock pot or a double boiler or in a pot itself, which probably back in those days, it was an over open fire over a pot and you would let it slowly infuse, strain it, and then you have your salve ready in about an hour or so after it solidifies. So mm-hmm. I do add a little bit of that to my SAS for clients who need support topically for skin related issues. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. So using those things definitely is very, very helpful. And I also, you know, if I teach it, then I also ought to, I have to do it too. Yeah. Do what you teach, you know, and so, but uh, certainly it's been a real blessing to be able to bring more of that into my own practice and also share with people that this is also that these approaches that I have is also extending into my ancestral line as well. I love that feverfew salt idea. Yeah. Yeah. I haven't thought about putting feverfew in a salt before, and I definitely Mm. want to try that now. Thank you for naming this. Yeah. In general, I mean, it's, it's, it's like I experiment a lot with that during the summer. And so, you know, mm-hmm. my, like, you know, this is why, plus why I was finishing up school. I'm like, I need to experience with, experiment with salts. And so right. I just kind of went to town and w- went cold, fr- all fresh, use fresh plant. Yeah. Do you, do you crush the flowers up and put them and mix them with salt or you, with the you fresh You do it simultaneous. Or? Fresh plant, you do it simultaneous. Mm-hmm. So you will add your fresh plant to your salt and then you can put it in your blender and blend oh. it. And then what's cool about it is that oh. when you do that, you'll watch your salt change color. 
it'll take on the color of the plant. Oh my gosh. Yeah. So like I made some calendula and it turned orange, but feverfew, it turns green, you know? And Mm -hmm. so whatever herb or plant you use, it's going to turn the color of that plant. Maybe you might use clitoria, the butterfly pea. So that's Mm going to turn that beautiful purple color. So, Mm -hmm. and then you would spread it out on like a baking sheet and let it dry because you don't, Mm -hmm. because you don't want it to, you know, you don't want to keep it wet. You want it to be dry and then add it to your salt shaker or package. And there you go. It's pretty mm-hmm. simple. Well, it's very effective. It is another way of getting herbs into the body through seasoning, but also for medicinal purposes, if, you know, people need to get more trace minerals, plus the minerals from the plant, they have that double benefit as well. I could probably go on with um No, please go. With, That's what we're with here with, for. with with uh, with these kitchen remedies. I just love this. Have you tried St. John's Wort? Does it uh, turn purple? Yes, I have. I have St. John's Wort mm. is great. It turns a nice uh, you know, the, the crimson does come out. It doesn't come out probably as deep as it would with the alcohol, a solvent, or even a mm-hmm. glycerin, or or even when you, you let it solar infuse. But you do pick up some of the hints of the pink, mm-hmm. which is nice. And interestingly enough, you know, St. John's Wort, again, was another plant that African-Americans interacted with in a form of either a tea or foot bath. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. Hey, Tara. Hi, John. This is the part where we talk about things that are in between. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, actually i don't know how much we need to you know i don't want to go on too long in the part here because i'm just so fascinated and engaged in this conversation with sherelle um it is just just has me yeah i don't know how i mean you know you know what i mean (laughs) i do know yeah i'm really grateful to get to talk with her and excited for the next part of the conversation yeah but what's coming to me is, you know, how creative Sherelle is with with recipes. And just during this, you know, she's been talking about the salts, you know, with the fever few and, and, and all. And um, yeah, it just makes me, you know, remember that you can be really creative with it. I mean, and that's a fun part of maybe learning some of the basics of making remedies first, because like any art, right, you learn the basics and the, maybe the quote-unquote rules and then from there you can go off and explore and make your own thing and find your own voice absolutely just getting that hands-on experience and playing around in your kitchen with herbs that's one of my favorite parts of being an herbalist you know maybe i see a a recipe or there's you know one in my family and then i i try it out but then i also play around and experiment yeah yeah you know, and on Herb Mentor, that's what I really like about the Rosemary's Remedies course. Rosemary mm-hmm. just shows you her remedies, you know, kind of like, here's ones from my book and does nothing the whole time, but encourage you to find your own voice. And, you know, and um, and of course, there are so many ideas and all in there, too. Recipes all over the place on Herb Mentor and videos and whatnot that you could, you know, like get your basics and then learn to be creative because that's what, you know, that's why I do this. I just like it because there's no end to what you can do and experience. I mean, right when you were in herbal school, how long did it take you, Tara, from learning those basics to the point when you were just out there experimenting, doing, finding mm. your voice? Yeah, you know, it took me a little while because I was I was a little nervous at first, like I didn't have a lot of confidence. Mm-hmm. Um, but once I got over that, just that little hump, I was like, oh, there's <laughs> there's no rules actually. <laughs> yeah, you know, <laughs> there yeah. can be a lot of more like creativity in the kitchen and I can follow my intuition with how I work with, yeah. you know, these different recipes and remedies. Yeah. Just like, just don't eat anything poisonous and don't pick a bunch of things that um, are endangered. And you should... Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> so there's more to it than that, but that, you'll learn. So anyway, yeah. And, and, and if you're interested in checking out our mentor or community there and all the Gosh, the, the plant profile, the monographs and the courses, the 15 plus courses, the all of the resources, the community. You can just go to the the uh, URL for this podcast, which is our mentorradio.com because we put a little thing there for listeners, a little, little, uh, little um, special secret offer where you can just check it out for a week and see if it's for you and give you an awesome rate for that offer for that membership. So... Yeah, I think um, anything else, Tara? I think we should just get back to Sherelle. Let's just get back. I, I want to keep listening to her. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. 
So um, uh, what about honeys? What's your favorite honey to to make? To make, you mean my favorite herbal like honey? Like herbal honey, yeah. Oh, mm-hmm. you know, I really love making herbal honeys with cinnamon, with rose, with lavenders, with clove, with the with the carminative spices. I love mm-hmm. tasting that in my honeys. And so I definitely have done that. I've done an elderberry honey with those spices. So I definitely have a, a love for your cardamoms, your cinnamons, your cloves. <laughs> those I love those spices with honey. Yeah. It just it pairs really well. I've even done it with dried ginger. You know, I, I I've done those types of different honeys too as well. Now, honey wasn't something that at the time during, you know, during the time of slavery, it wasn't mm-hmm. a time that honey wasn't something that was easily procured, mm-hmm. you know. And so that wasn't something that too many of us, too many of our ancestors had access to until much later going into more contemporary times, mm-hmm. you know. Mm-hmm. Um, but things like sugar or brown sugars and again, molasses was probably closest to honey. And that was where things like asafoetida would have been infused, which I have made asafoetida molasses, which I have in my own personal home apothecary here. And mm-hmm. um, and that was used to administer to children. Can you talk a little bit more about asafoetida? I've I've barely worked with this plant. I feel like I've just scratched the surface and I would, I'd love to hear <laughs> mm-hmm. more about your, yeah, your work with this beautiful plant being. Yeah, asafoetida, you know, it's commonly known as giant fennel. And it is believed to be originated in somewhere in, in the Middle Eastern parts of the world and in, in, in the Middle East. And so I believe the way that it's harvested is the resin from the roots part of the plant is what they mm. use to help make the resin or the gum resin. And so that actual resin is extremely pungent and it is popular in a lot of Southeast Asian dishes and in some other parts of Africa as well, in Middle East and in um, those places, they use it to flavor food, but they also use it um, medicinally well for a, a myriad of literally health issues. So African-Americans, that was one of the plants that, you know, are that, you know, African-Americans used to treat a myriad of issues. That was the one plant. It was for the nervous system. It was for the immune system. It was, you know, for the digestive system. It was for a bunch of different systems, but it was really noted to thwart off illnesses, you know? Mm -hmm. And so traditionally, and I remember my grandparents talking about it, they used to call it asafidity bags or asafidity. And so basically Mm -hmm. they would take the resin and put it in a sack And you would tie that sack around the neck. And for children, you would tie little sacks around the waist. And so the because it was so pungent, it would literally thwart off illnesses. Well, there is a science to that, that the actual smell of the aromatherapy, it works Mm -hmm. by way of your olfactories. It actually would get inside of your respiratory system by way through your olfactories to literally help push out or to destroy Powerful pathogens that were airborne. Wow. Hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But um, yeah, so they would tie it around the neck of adults and the waist of children. And that would be a way. And there would be sometimes they would sing different songs around it because you would smell so bad. And so everybody would keep their distance. And so mm-hmm. it was something that even my husband, because he's from the Deep South, he's born and raised in Jackson, Mississippi. So that's what. That's what it was used for. And so, but also it was infused in molasses. Mm. Yeah, molasses had a sweet taste. Um, it does not taste good as a tea. I know because I've made it and I wouldn't recommend it. Don't do it. Do it in molasses. <laughs> it's just <laughs> do it in molasses. And so nowadays you can get asafoetida in a powder form, which is what I recommend. And, you mm-hmm. know, in powder form, it definitely pairs well with your Things like onion, garlicky. It kind of has that onion, garlicky kind of taste. And so, but it really is effective. And I've also uh, made it in our signature fire cider called Fire Train Fire Cider that I Mm -hmm. do uh, sell when I do pop-ups and stuff like that. And it really has been extremely effective in keeping us healthy at home. 
and keeping mm. colds and, and flus at bay. And even if I feel like I'm coming down with something, I make sure I drink that with the the, the fire train fire cider that has that some asafoetida in it. So I definitely have used that. I know I created a blend that I had sold at an event that I did where it was a tincture blend with that had asafoetida called First Sign. But right at the first sign of your, you know, you feel like you're getting something, you take that and it's really helped to just, you know, help to keep the sickness at bay. And it really works mm-hmm. with your immune system to help, you know, shore up and to help, you know, it, you know, get itself ready to help keep the bad bugs away. Mm-hmm. <laughs> mm-hmm. So, yeah. So it was, again, asafoetida uh, amongst African-Americans was used really for your all around go to for keeping, pe- keeping, keeping illnesses and stuff away mm-hmm. and also nervous conditions. You know, mm. if you have extreme anxiety, because it does have some anxiolytic benefits as well. Mm-hmm. Wow. Yeah. You know, I have yeah. a little bag of asafoetida just sitting in my herb. I don't know, this pile of herbs that I have. Yeah. And I've been eyeing it and been like, I don't know exactly how to work with this one. But so I'm really grateful right. just hearing right. you, yeah. know, you talking yeah. about all these different ways to work with you it. Can. And you I, can. And yeah. yeah. <laughs> you, and, you can, and you can make a honey with it too. I mean, the honey will mm-hmm. be well. It's just, I, you know, again, molasses to me, it's not as sweet, but it just has so many other benefits, especially the iron and the calcium content. And, you know, you can also get it as a molasses that's unsulfured, so it doesn't have that sulfuric taste. So I would recommend that you use, you know, either honey or molasses as your solvent and mm-hmm. infuse it with that. And then and you can make a tea by adding either the honey or the molasses to your tea, about maybe a teaspoon, and then take that. Or if you have a fire cider that you're making, you can add that to kind of round out the taste from the apple cider vinegar. As you're speaking, Sherelle, I'm just, I'm feeling a lot of gratitude for all of the hands-on experience of working with all these different herbs that you're sharing with us. Just like, you know, you talking about like, you know, maybe you could read about asafoetida tea and be like, yeah, sure. Take that. But you know, Mm -hmm. since you've tried Mm -hmm. it, it, Mm -hmm. you know, it doesn't taste as good that way. And just (laughs) thinking, yeah. Right. And all of this making the calendula salt and just all of these beautiful remedies that you're talking about I'm just I'm just imagining what it must be like to be your client and to receive a beautiful calendula or feverfew salt from you rather than you know we can get so used to in this world you know you go to the pharmacy and you just get your you kind of standard thing in the orange bottle and yeah. it's so beautiful to, and that's <laughs> great too but yeah. like to have this this beautiful handmade medicine that's made with so much story and care and that's so beautiful like this beautiful mm-hmm. salt I'm just imagining how amazing that must be to get to work with you and yeah just you know yeah you a just, lot of gratitude and, and you just mentioned story Tara I'm wondering you know I'm wondering Sherelle in your research like how much and how much has story played in the preservation of information and the handing down of, you know, how to not just use the herbs, but approach how to use them in a way that's healing. Because it sounds like you have such a, you know, just <laughs> a beautiful way of sharing herbs with your client. Well, yeah. I mean, when we look at story in, or, I mean, that's in so many, so many cultures, you know, and so that's even when we look at example, Chinese medicine, where some of the, you know, if you go to acupuncturist and they give you a, a formula and if you go and look up the combination of herbs that's in that formula, you'll see that while that exact same formula may have been created in like the 13th century under in this particular dynasty for this particular thing. And it's the same formula that was created then. And it hasn't changed. But then there's a whole story there about what was happening mm-hmm. historically at that time as to why that particular formula was created. It was created for this emperor because their kid mm-hmm. was sick or because they got sick and that's how they got it. Or maybe, you know, the emperor got sick and he said that if you, the emperor told people, well, if you guys don't <laughs> do this, then this is going to happen or whatever. But it was created. And there's this backstory to give you a fuller context as to the conditions in which that formula was created to help do two things. This is how long it's been around. And then also another historical landmark 
that this is how this came about. So similarly, mm-hmm. if in our traditions, there's there, there there's a plethora of historical events, and then with the, and then and then within each family, there's different stories that each family has around how they came to interact with these certain plants and herbs. And so in my research, there's definitely that picture of historical events that shaped why certain plants were used. And the one Mm -hmm. that comes to my mind immediately is is cotton. You know, cotton Uh is becoming Mm -hmm. more popular and people are hearing about it. But the reason why, at least on this continent, it really came to the surface was because African-American herbalists, that was one of the, that was just another one of the plants, rather, that we were noted for because we used it to do a couple of things for reproductive health and mm-hmm. if also for an abortifacient. Now, mm-hmm. there's talk around that today, around, you know, the whole issue of, you know, you know, abortion today, but the conditions, and that's the piece, that's the story, is that in those days where the high infant mortality was rate was really, really high, and the mm-hmm. condition and health of the mother was really, really poor, and oftentimes, you know, the life of the, the nutritional life of a slave was not the best, because it's not that they weren't able to eat as much, you know, and that the the labor work life was just really, really harsh, you know, and sometimes this, you know, the workday would end sometimes at midnight for them to have to get up the next day at like six in the morning. So you had less sleep. You didn't have access to eat as much as you want. And then the quality of the food too, all of those things contributed to the health of the mother. And then if she herself wasn't getting proper rest, that influenced why children would be born underweight or the mother would be malnourished. And then sometimes there would be hyperplasia, which was a common health issue in that time. And so abortifacients really was used to induce a miscarriage Mm -hmm. if the life of the mother was not well. And also the horrible reality of a mother's child being sold from underneath her. That was Mm -hmm. just an emotional trauma that, it's like it's and it was also used to like, you know, we just we don't we don't want that. So it was a whole bunch of things. And so using that plant was used in that context and used in that event and that story. But the usage of it was handled by people who knew what they were doing, who were very knowledgeable, who were very skilled at being able to administer the plant. They knew at what point in the woman's pregnancy to do that in the conditions and the health signaling that was happening around her that said, okay, we need to use this plant because the chances of her delivering a healthy baby are slim to none. And also the emotional trauma of having that child taken from her is just more than this, more, it's more than anyone should bear. So that's that story piece there around that plant. So those things really come in, they they come into play around how people interact with plants. So that's just one that comes to my mind, you know, immediately Mm -hmm. is that particular plant. And now, you know, I'm hearing more women talk about cotton because it definitely has benefits for, you know, right when you're at the point of labor to help ease labor pain, you know, and to help to make the delivery process a little bit easier on the mom. But still, there's this more kind of, there's more of a detached, there's more of a a detachment from that story, um, as opposed to now there's, we know that, you know, it's really good for helping to bring on immenses. It's helping to, you know, help to ease type of menstrual cramps or discomfort. And if you are pregnant, how to help, you know, ease the delivery process and so that you're having less pain during delivery. We know those things now, but there's also this story that I shared as well that comes with that, that shapes why that plant is important, you know, not only as a cash crop, but also as a life-saving crop, a, a, a crop as well. So that's just one, that's one immediate example that kind of then, And then also there's, you know, collard mm-hmm. greens, brassica oleracea, 
those dyes, those plants. And there's certainly, you know, stories around okra. There's stories around, you know, the sweet potato, not around the peanuts, around watermelon. You know, there's all those individual familial stories, but then there's also those cultural stories too, where some of those seedlings were brought over and braided into the hair of African women on board slave ships. And uh, some slave owners would, would, they knew what countries had certain skills that, you know, the Americas needed. So they knew where to go to bring those slaves. And so in transport, some of the women would braid grains of rice, you know, because there's, you know, rice growing cultures there that are experts in rice growing or seeds of indigo. And of course, seeds of watermelon and okra and those things that were brought over, you know, because of how they were used and then also their health benefit and also their benefit to, to help ensure survival here in a new land. Thank you so much for presencing these stories. And it it makes me think about one of the first things you said in the beginning about problematizing and, and unpacking the term Western herbalism yeah. and really thinking about what is this term, what stories, you know, and what ancestral legacies is this term obscuring mm. and how important it is to really presence those stories, especially if, you know, if you're entering into in, in this lifetime, a new relationship with an herb, really, you know, asking mm. yourself, who are the people who've been working with this herb for generations and what mm. stories do they hold really sacred in relationship with this herb? And how can mm. I honor that legacy? Mm. Or is this even an mm. herb I should be working with, et cetera? Right. Um, yeah. 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 Just feeling really grateful for you bringing yeah. the stories, pieces to, to all of this. Yeah. Yeah. And, mm-hmm. and, and again, just to be clear that, you know, there's I'm speaking more of the cultural event type story, but like mm-hmm. I said, the individual family stories are different that I don't know them all. I just know maybe right. my own yeah. family, our own <laughs> stories, but just in a larger cultural context, there are those, yeah. there are those stories that are in the context of an event or, or sure. a condition that occurred. Like one, another one is of course, watermelon. That was one of the plants that I did a showcase in one of my herbal presentations. And now mm. there's just this beautiful cultural, there's a reclamation of that plant back, you know, to us because it had been used, it, it had become a plant that negatively stereotyped Black people. But now it's like, no, let's let's reclaim that because there's so much benefit to this plant, not only as a food source, but good for our urinary tract. And actually, watermelon seed was something that Africans used to help treat uh, kidney stones and to help to support the urinary tract as well. So watermelon seed tea, which I actually know how to make, you know, mm-hmm. <laughs> so, oh. and then pickled watermelon brine, you know, those types of things using the whole plant. And so it's, using it's the whole plant, right. the whole plant, you know, nothing really goes to waste, you know, and I know again, story time, my grandmother, oh my God, she loved mm. putting <laughs> salt on her watermelon. She loved doing that. And I love doing it too. I just put a little bit of salt to give it a, like a sweet kind of sweet, salty taste. And it's so refreshing and very hydrating because I'm adding, you know, more trace minerals right. to it. And, you know, it's one of those fruits that I just eat during the summer or hot months, but adding that little bit of salt, it gives me, you know, extra layer of hydration and it's just so good. And so that was something that, you know, I definitely continued on because she just loved adding just a little bit of salt to her watermelon. <laughs> wow. I'm going to try that. Yeah, sure. it's quite, it's quite good. <laughs> you know, Cheryl, something that just you know, came up for me is like, you know, earlier you were talking about appreciation versus appropriation Mm -hmm. and, and you've told all these amazing stories and, and with stories and with how we use these plants and how we teach about these plants, how do we in different cultures, different, you know, like, you know, appreciate versus like how not to appropriate. Cause this was, Something, of course, we've been really, you know, as a culture, been talking more and more and more about these last few years. And when I started working with herbs and I started learning herbs, it was something that I wasn't 
as aware of that I have become more aware of and that mm-hmm. I really want to make sure that I'm doing. Um, and from your perspective, when you're teaching, how do you share with people like, you know, appreciation versus appropriation? Yeah, well, appreciation is really anchored in knowledge, knowledge mm-hmm. of that other culture. So like, for example, you know, you go to, well, I've been in a lot of space. I definitely will speak and I speak. I've been in a lot of circles where there's land acknowledgement. You know, we're going to acknowledge the land that if like, if you were in Oakland, we're going to acknowledge that this is Oakland or the Ohlone peoples. And then I thought, well, what else? (laughs) What else? Mm -hmm. What else? You know? And so then I began to think, well, is it enough for me just to acknowledge and I don't know much about this particular group of people mm-hmm. or what, what research or homework have I done? And so while the act of land acknowledgement is certainly a step, but then I want to go further. I'm like, let me go further and learn or get ask questions and find out more so that I can appreciate by knowing who they are. So that's yeah. really important in a cultural appreciation is what, well, first of all, I know that you appreciate something. You have to understand what it is that you're appreciating. You have to <laughs> understand, you know, yes. well, what is it that I really appreciate and who are they? You know, what did they bring? You know, what, what do we know about them? How did they contribute to this space? You know, and so that's really important. And again, you know, because we're because this continent is such a melting pot of so many different cultures, then it just for me beckons the question: Well, how much about other cultures do I really know? And it's not to say I need to know all. No, know the people that are most around you. Who's most around you that you come in contact with? Who's most around you that you can sit and ask questions to, so that when it comes your turn to share, or even if you're speaking in a herbal context that, oh, I know this plant because I know of these people because, you know, I, you did that, you did that work. So that when you talk about a particular plant or a particular herbal approach from a cultural lens, that you can speak to that based on what you experienced and based on what you learned, based on, you know, the people that you interacted with that gave you that information. And then you're just bringing it forward. And you're acknowledging that this is where I got it. I got it from this group. I learned it this way. And that's how we appreciate. That's how we do that. And so we got to know who, what it is we're we're appreciating. Know, you know, and you don't have to be an expert. It can just be, hey, you know, I, I know that this particular plant was brought here by this particular group of people and they interacted with their, they interact with it in this way. And you were blessed to be able to interact with members of that particular group if that's available to you to do. Mm-hmm. But it's rooted in knowledge. It's rooted in understanding and knowing who this particular group or who this this practice that you're bringing in or you're speaking to, do you know the people? Do you know and understand their experience enough to be able to say, hey, this is where I got it, or to even to be able to bring that part forward? That really helps. It's just let's take time to understand and know. And that takes time. That's not something we can do in one breath. Be something like about a really clear example is that, you know, I have been studying Hawaiian dance and culture for over 15 years now. Mm-hmm. And so wow. when I when I speak of Hawaiian culture, I can speak from knowledge, from experience. I can speak from those things because I have, you know, learned within that community. I've sat with them. I've eaten with them. I've visited Hawaii several times. You know, I've done that work so that the if, whatever information I bring from that perspective, I can hold it and also talk about the people so that people can appreciate them even more. Thank you for sharing, Sherelle. Yes, thanks. Um, You're welcome. Yeah. You know, talking with you and learning and just hearing all about how you've really been learning about traditional and historical herbal practices and just how you weave them so much into your life. I'm curious how they've shaped your own practice as an herbalist, whether it's as a clinician or just every day in your kitchen. And you've already kind of answered this, but yeah, I'm just curious if there's anything else that's present for you with how these practices shape you and your herbal path. 
Well, I mean, they shape me in being able to bring more of my full self to mm-hmm. the practice and, you know, be able to bring the legacy of those who came before me because, you know, I'm here because of them, Yeah, you know, and that yeah. what I'm doing now, I'm, I'm the answer to their prayers. I'm an answer to their prayers. And so it's like, I have so much gratitude for that. And so I feel there's this deep obligation for me to do it, not obligation from a place of pressure, but like in order for that legacy to continue, then yeah, I need to bring it forward, you know? And so when, you know, I get a client and I'm able to now bring in something like asafoetida, you know, and I don't I don't always say, well, this is an herb that African-Americans use. I don't always say that because I'm not always in this space to just say that it's not always relevant. But the fact that it's available for me to do it and I can and on their information sheet and their ingredient sheet that I give them, I can, you know, list the actions and I can list, you know, how it will support the body. But then because I'm seeing that herb listed, I know that, wow, this is what my ancestors worked hard for. This is what some of them died for. And there are so many unknown herbalists who are not, you know, they're not written of, but the fact that I get to be a voice for them too, you know, in this way, you know, so it's like something that I would hear in our family is that once you know something, you cannot unknow it. You cannot unknow a thing once you know. And so then what do you do with what you know? You, you, you bring it forward. You bring it forward in lots of ways. And so, yeah, when I formulate and the fact that I can look in my apoth- apothecary and bring these herbs or um, I had a client recently who needed support for lymphedema. And I had a you know nice long consult with this person and I talked about poke root. And, you know, definitely there's different approaches. There's the approach that poke root is, you know, toxic and poke root (laughs) is only, you know, be taken in so many doses. But poke root was what I brought to her. She's like, well, you know, I don't really know much about poke root. Well, that was an opportunity for me to speak to poke root on on a constituent level, but to also speak to it on a cultural level and how, you know, I remember hearing about poke salad. You know, I remember, you know, that poke root was something that, you know, our ancestors used well, you know, in in addition to not only us, but also Native Americans as well. But particularly for this client, definitely was something that came forward to help move lymph. You know, a lot of stuck, you know, this person was experiencing a lot of stuck lymph, you know, Mm -hmm. to help move out metabolic waste and to help also if there's any type of metastasis in the body, which is what poke root was used for. You know, uh, the root was all, at least in among African-Americans, it was used in tea form, mm-hmm. not as a teacher. And you wouldn't need a lot of it, but yeah, you would you would use it as a heart infusion. So to be able to bring that plant forward and to speak to them and say, hey, this plant, I think would be really beneficial. And to include that plant in their formulation was bringing that is right there for me to do. And this was a plant, and this, and this one, I actually harvested that one fresh and freshly dried it. So it was even nice that I was able to, you know, get access to fresh poke root, dry it fresh, you know, dry it from fresh plant and bring that into the medicine. You know, she had never interacted with the plant, but I'm like, this is the new thing I want to bring to you to really help keep that at bay. So she was really happy with it. And so far, so good. Well, Sherelle, this has been astoundingly enlightening, amazing conversation and I've learned so much just a deeper understanding and the stories and cultures of herbalism and I really hope that we can you know have you back and work with you more Mm. I really really appreciate everything it's just so from the heart and so beautiful well thank you and there's certainly more in terms of areas to cover around African-American or the term that I use is Black North American herbalism, in addition to our herbs and, you know, formulations and remedies and a little pathophysiology and approach, you know, to treating. And those things can can be discussed as well. You know, food, 
of our biggest medicine, you know, mm-hmm. different mm-hmm. food preparations. I know in classes, they love when I give recipe for making collard greens or making pickled okra, you know, those things that are gems that, you know, our, our first medicine is food. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Honestly, the Urbanter community is thirsty for what you have to share and yeah. would love for you to share more. Um, yes. So Tara, where again can uh, everyone listening follow Sherelle's uh, comings and goings? <laughs> work? Well, you can follow Sherelle on Instagram at Exalted Natural Body, and that's spelled I X A L T E D Natural Body. And I would say too that eventually Sherelle, that website's going to be that is going to be updated. And I'd like to know what it, do you know your the URL of the site you're updating so someone could try seeing if it's ready yet because someone might be listening to this in a year. <laughs> yeah. So right now we are looking at it's www.teesandtinctures.com. I, I, I mm-hmm. hope I'm right, but we'll just we'll just leave this thought. I'll make sure you get the right one. It's teas and t- either teas and teachers or teas and herbs. One of those yeah. two. We'll make sure we put it in the description for sure. Yeah. Yeah. Um, again, it's not so. like I said, it's not they're not gonna see much they're not gonna see much of anything, but that is the yeah. your what it's either it's either www.teasandteachers.com or www.teasandherbs.com, one of those two. And so but yeah, it's not up yet, but you can put it there as a placeholder. <laughs> All right. Wonderful. Well, thank you so much for chatting with us, Sherelle. It was so sweet to get to talk to you and learn from you. And I'm just really grateful for you taking the time to chat with us. Thank you for having me. It's been great. I hope that I answered all of your questions and oh, I, you I did. really, okay. <laughs> and it was That's really, great. really great to, you know, go back, you know, the memory lane to some of these things and to also be able to share in this context. So it's always an honor to be able to share with such a wider audience. So thank you for this opportunity, John and Tara. Thank you so much. Wait, 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 wait. Don't go quite yet, folks. We have a brand new thing to share with you. (laughs) <laughs> on Herb Mentor Radio, a brand new feature. And Tara, I was wondering if you could tell us what it is. Oh, yeah, I would love to. Mm-hmm. So this brand new thing is Herb Notes. Yes. And Herb Notes are basically just a little a little introduction to an herb with three simple ways to work with that herb. And they're just a very inspiring way to get introduced, meet a new plant, mm-hmm. and then offer you a few different ways to start working with that plant, start bringing it into your own kitchen into your life yes and um you might see on your podcast feed herb notes will sometimes like be by themselves so you can just listen for a couple of minutes and learn about a new herb or like learn a little more about an herb that you've already been learning about or you know just like just a little pause in your day right just to (laughs) reflect upon the amazing herbs that are out there and um you know, for a little while, we're going to make it part of our Mentor Radio podcast, too. So we're just playing around here and uh, and uh, hope you enjoy Herb Notes. Yes, enjoy. Welcome to Herb Notes. I'm Tara Ruth from Learning Herbs. One of the questions we get a lot at Learning Herbs is, what is yarrow used for? So let's break it down together. Yarrow's Latin name is Achillea millifolium, and its common names of woundwort and nosebleed plant give us a few more hints about yarrow's gifts. Yarrow's bright white flowers and those feathery leaves have a knack for healing wounds and then also stopping bleeding. We can also rely on yarrow for lowering fevers. Sipping a hot cup of yarrow tea brings on perspiration, which encourages the body to cool down and break the fever. And beyond first aid, yarrow has a reputation for strengthening the cardiovascular system. You can call on yarrow for varicose veins, spider veins, and poor circulation to tonify and bring balance to the vasculature. So to recap, here are three ways that you can use yarrow. One, you can apply yarrow tincture or a yarrow compress topically to stop bleeding in minor first aid situations. Two, you can brew a hot cup of delicious yarrow tea to lower a fever. It'll be a little bitter, but it'll taste pretty good, I think. And then three, you can take yarrow tincture or tea internally to strengthen the cardiovascular system. And so right now you might be asking yourself, you know, 
where can I find yarrow? And one of the reasons we get asked about yarrow so often is because it's a pretty prolific plant. Yarrow is easy to grow and you might even find it sprouting up in overgrown lawns and along pathways. And we tend to recommend using the white yarrow rather than that more cultivated pink and yellow yarrow, which are often not as medicinal. And if you want to learn more about Yarrow's health benefits, you can visit us at herbnotes.cards to grab a free deck of our top 12 herb notes. You'll learn all about common, amazing herbs like yarrow and echinacea, cinnamon, aloe, dandelion, coffee, and more. This has been Herb Notes with me, Tara Ruth. Catch you next time. Herb Mentor Radio and Herb Notes are 100% sustainably wildcrafted podcasts written, performed, and produced by Tara Ruth and me, John Gallagher. Sound engineering by Zach Frank. Visit HerbMentorRadio.com to subscribe on your favorite podcast app and to find out how you can be part of Herb Mentor, which is a website that you must see to believe. Herb Mentor Radio is a production of LearningHerbs.com, LLC, all rights reserved. Thank you very, very, very much for listening.